Father, we are so thankful that you have designed in your mercy that we would, as your people, corporately gather together each week to worship you, to offer you our praise, to hear you speak to us in your word, to respond with songs of delight and joy in Christ and in your glory and in the grace we've received, to have conversations with those who share the same hope, who have the same Father, the same Lord, the same future, the same joys, the same sadnesses, the same delights, the same faith in your word. Lord, we thank you for for these things. And we ask now that as we open your word that you would exalt the Christ before our eyes, that you would, Holy Spirit, be our teacher, be our enabler to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, conform us more and more to the image of our Savior to make us more and more those who walk in wisdom and sober-mindedness because of the realities of the gospel, because of the realities of future judgment, because of the end of this world as it is that must be destroyed before you bring the new one to come. So in all of these ways, and and Lord, whatever myriad of ways that you're working in the hearts of each individual life here this morning, we ask you to... Again, exalt your name, and we pray these in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Well, open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6, Revelation chapter 6. We are coming this morning to the end of the sixth seal, the end of the sixth seal, and these are, of course, a record of the judgments of God, the beginning judgments of God, which are coming upon the world those that will mark the end of this age, those that are anticipating the bodily, physically return of Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom on earth, the Lord Jesus Christ who will remove from his kingdom everything that stands in opposition to him. This is the reality of the future of this age. This is what is coming. This is the certainty of what we can anticipate. And God has revealed this to us for our wisdom, for our good, for our hope, for our joy, as well as for the warning of those who stand outside of Christ, as well as a warning and a plea for mercy, really, of those who are yet standing in rebellion to Christ, knowing that there is still now the opportunity for salvation, but one day that salvation will be, the opportunity will be removed, and there is only the fearful expectation of judgment. And so even in the horrors of all that what God has revealed is coming by his own hand, there is in that a, a plea, a, a reminder, a provocation to turn to the Lord, to realize for his people that justice will be upheld, and for those who are outside to remember that today is the day of salvation. So let's this morning read this passage again of the sixth seal, beginning in verse 12 down to verse 17, and then we'll briefly review what we covered last week and go to the second point this morning. So begin in verse 12. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. As a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now we noted last week that this sixth seal breaks up into two simple parts. First is the physical devastation that is coming upon the earth. And secondly, the personal response of those who are on the earth experiencing this wrath that is beginning to be unleashed on ungodly men. And so we noted in verse 12 through 14 that there is... Great destruction, great upheaval, great terror that is coming as a result of God's bringing destruction to his physical creation. These judgments, we have argued, come at the end of the first three and a half years of the last week of Daniel's prophecy. 
They fit the time, both in the Olivet Discourse and the beginning of the birth pains just before the Great Tribulation, a time mentioned by Christ in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and particularly Luke chapter 21 highlights these events. Let me just remind you of that in verses 25 through 26. He says, There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth, dismay among the nations and perplexity, At the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, the inhabited earth, for the power and the heavens will be shaken. And all of these are in anticipation of the Son of Man who is, again, coming to establish his kingdom. And we noted after looking at those there are several point, that there are several things to observe. First is this, that God is absolutely sovereign over his creation as holy creator. He created all things in sovereignty. He sustains all things and upholds them by the word of his power. He rules over all things for his purposes. Things are not just as they are because that's the way it is. They are that way because God made it, because he sustains it. He upholds it upholds it, and he directs it to his purposes. We noted as well that the effect of sin is comprehensive. It affects all of creation. We reminded ourselves that when God produced, pronounced a judgment on man, the very first thing that he cursed in speaking to Adam was the ground. It is that curse on the ground that is behind Paul's word that says all creation groans, waiting for its release into the freedom of the sons of God that it groans with all of humanity and that we ourselves, here speaking of believer, groan within ourselves awaiting for this release that is coming to those who have been redeemed, to the elect, those who have been born again, those who have been united to Christ, longing for the fullness of the experience of that salvation. We noted as well that creation under sin then must be destroyed and remade as a home for righteousness. Even in the lives of believers and the resurrection pictures this, that these, these bodies of which Paul said, who will save me from this body of death, must be destroyed. They must be eliminated so that we can receive new bodies and a new resurrection and indestructible bodies, permanent bodies, those filled with the Spirit, spiritual bodies made to live in God's everlasting presence forever. Now all of this is yet to be realized in its fullness. And even the events here where God brings the initial destruction upon the earth, anticipating the fullness of the rest of his plans at the return of Christ and so forth, that these events are not yet the end, but they are anticipating the end. They mark that the end is near And they fill men's hearts with fear. And so the physical devastation then leads in verse 15 through 17 to the personal response. The personal response that is recorded for us in light of these judgments of God. And I want to note first here then in verse 15, the perfect justice of God. The perfect justice of God in his unleashing these judgments. And that is behind this response of man. Look at what he says. Let's read just verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains seeking to flee from the justice of God. This is, again, a dramatic and sobering assurance that no sin and no sinner will escape being dealt with according to holy, perfect Justice from God, who is infinite in knowledge, infinite in power, infinite in purity. And so the first thing to note about this perfect justice of God is that it's comprehensive. It's comprehensive. It includes everyone. None are exempt. None will escape. Now, it's interesting to note here in verse 15 that he begins to describe the comprehensive nature of this justice by Acknowledging those who are the great men of the earth, those who are the commanders, those who are the strong, those who are the rich, those who seem to be the very embodiment of human power, those who seem to have a security in the lives that they have created for themselves. They are the ones first mentioned here as receiving or responding to this justice of God in fear. The kings of the earth, 
the great men of the earth, the commanders of the earth, the rich of the earth, the strong of the earth. Those who would seem to be most able to stand against the judgment of God. They are the ones cowering in fear. Why does he mention these? Why does he emphasize that? Let me give you just a few suggestions. One, because these are the ones who feel the most secure in rebellion against God. Wealth acts as a shield in the minds of the wealthy. Power acts as a false confidence against God and those who have power. And yet here it's shown to be nothing before God. And it's because these are the ones who have this power and wealth These who are the strong of the earth are the primary source of human authority that persecutes his people. Remember, the sixth seal is also coming in response to the fifth seal, which was the martyrs beneath the altar who cried out for justice from God, who cried out for vengeance. And the sixth seal is the beginning of God in a very unique way, answering that prayer, one that will be answered throughout all of the judgments that are coming in Revelation that are yet to come upon the face of the earth. So he mentions these because these are the ones who feel the most secure against him. These are the ones who are the source of the persecution of his people. But also because of this. These are the things that foster pride in man. And God hates pride. As a matter of fact, not uncommonly in scripture, God singles out that one attribute of man as the very target of his judgment. The very thing that he will remove from the heart of man when he reveals himself in his glory. You don't have to turn there. Let me just read to you one passage that makes this quite explicit in Isaiah chapter 2. Speaking of the judgment that is coming upon the earth. He says this, verse 10. Enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. Why in verse 11? He says the proud look of man will be abased. The loftiness of man will be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Verse 17, the pride of man will be humbled, and the loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Verse 19, these who now exalt themselves will go into caves and rocks and holes in the ground before the terror of the Lord, the splendor of his majesty, when he arises to make the earth tremble. God hates pride. He despises and abhors the pride of man. He is offended and provoked to wrath by man's arrogance in standing up and presuming to stand against him or stand up to him in his presence. And so God is determined in his judgment to humble man, to show them that they are but dust to show the nations that they are meaningless, they are less than nothing in his sight, Isaiah 40. God is determined to do that because God alone will be glorified. However, the pride of man is not limited only to the rich and powerful, and neither is his judgment. In that, he captures the rest of everyone else in the the ending statement there. He He will bring it against the kings of the earth, the great men, the commanders, the rich, the strong, and every slave and free man. That's everybody. All are involved. In other words, this judgment will come upon all people without respect to position in society, in government, in personal wealth or lack of it, intelligence or lack of it, power or having none. All the rebellious on the face of the earth will have to participate in these coming calamities. And in this way, one has noted that the gospel and judgment is the great equalizer of all men. Judgment equalizes all men as they're held to the justice of God. And the gospel equalizes all men as it commands that all come on bended knee in repentance to Christ before the cross. God is no, shows no partiality. And that's the second part of this justice of God. It is comprehensive and it is without partiality. If there's one thing we see in the world that it favors a person according to their position, again, all of the things mentioned here, wealth, power, and so forth. But God does not consider any of these things. These things are meaningless to him. He pays no attention to them. They are less than meaningless. They are nothing. He is not swayed or impressed by position or power. And this has always been the foundation of God's justice, is that it is with absolute equity, without 
impartiality. There is one standard of justice, and it is grounded and bound to God's own nature. Listen to how he describes this in the law, for example, when he's laying down the foundation of the justice that is to mark his people, Deuteronomy 1.17. You shall show no partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and treat and the great and treat them alike. You shall not fear man for the judgment is God's. In Deuteronomy 10.17, he says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality or take a bribe. The very final judgment highlights these things as well. The end of Revelation in chapter 20 says, I saw the dead and listen to the description again. The great and the small standing before the throne and the books were open and they were judged according to their deeds. The great and the small, the rich and the poor, the intelligent and the unintelligent, those with power and no power, everyone who bears the image of God equally stands before the bar of God's justice and will be held to account those who are outside of him. They will be judged according to the things written in them, according to their deeds. It is appointed for a man to die once, and then comes the judgment. And so here in this unleashing, we see that it is an unleashing of the justice of God that is comprehensive. It is on all men. It is a justice of God which shows no partiality by position or any other human judgment or human attributes, and it is then too futile to try to escape this judgment. And so the futility of hiding from God's judgment, and that's what he leads to next. What did these do? They hid themselves, he said, in caves and among the rocks and among the mountains. They're trying to take refuge from God's judgment. They're trying to hide and escape the fury of his wrath. And I want to know before we look at this, this positive side, a positive side of this. As I noted at the beginning, that God's, God's warnings of judgments are a mercy. Men want to evade them. They want to minimize them. They want to try to escape from the reality of judgment. But we cannot do that. When we minimize the judgment of God, we remove from men one of God's motivations, one of the very things he's given to remind them to flee from their sin and flee to him for grace. And yet, even in the midst of this judgment, that is partly shown by the fact that those who have fleed to God's grace will in some measure even be spared from the direct experience of some of these. So where do I get that? Well, because he makes clear in Revelation and in other places that God makes a distinction in his particular judgments, not in what is experienced by the wrath of man, but in his particular judgments, he makes distinctions between those who belong to them and those who do not. Chapter 9 of Revelation, verse 4, as these trumpet judgments are unfolding, he says to this after talking about the bottomless pit that's open, these demonic forms that are unleashed to torment man. Verse 4, they were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who, who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. We'll get to that next week. He's making a distinction, though. He's sending them out to wreck pain on the earth, but not on all men, not on those that are sealed for his grace and by his grace. We see this in even the exodus, the great judgments that God brought against Pharaoh and that he brought against Egypt, comprehensive in the land the Egyptians suffered, and yet God made a distinction. Exodus 9, chapter 4, Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not even one of the livestock when God destroyed the livestock of Egypt. There was not one of the livestock of Israel dead. It says later in chapter 11, but against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So these judgments are felt in the full force of those who stand in rebellion against him, and yet there is the hope of refuge. There is even in that the hope of mercy for those who will cling to him and trust him. Actually, I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but I do want to at least mention one other passage. 
wish we could spend more time there, but it's in Zephaniah, actually. Zephaniah. Uh, you don't have to turn there again. Just In Zephaniah, the prophet is speaking to Judah, and he is warning them of the judgment to come. And he, and he does it under, as he, the prophets often do, under this description of the day of the Lord. We've spent time on that. The day of the Lord has these two aspects. It's, there's a part of it in the prophets in which it was referring to the destruction that was coming upon Jerusalem, particularly in Judea, also of Israel, destruction that was coming to them. But in Judea, the destruction that was going to come to them in the captivity. That same idea of the day of the Lord is picked up in those judgments and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And the day of the Lord is still held out as this future judgment that's to come at the return of Christ. All of those are in anticipation. The exile, the destruction of Jerusalem in the first century, and the coming day of the Lord. All of those are pointing to this coming great day of the Lord. Again, we've spent time on that. In Zephaniah, he is anticipating this day. He says in verse 2 of chapter 1, I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will, in verse 3, cut off man from the face of the earth. And he, he goes on and he begins talking about this day. He says in verse 14, near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming quickly. He says it's a day of wrath, it's a day of trouble and distress, of destruction and desolation, darkness and gloom, clouds and thick darkness and so forth. And then he changes the tone. In, in chapter 1, he's declaring the certainty of these events that are coming. In chapter 2, he makes a change and he starts giving these exhortations. In other words, the response of man to this day of the Lord. He says in verse 2, gather yourselves together. Yes, gather, O nation, without shame before the decree takes effect. That is the determined time that God will bring about these judgments. And the day passes like chaff before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Verse 3, seek the Lord. All you humble of the earth who have carried out his ordinances, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps, maybe, you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Even in this judgment that was coming, he holds out the possibility of hope, some refuge for those who will run to refuge to God. But for those who won't, there is no refuge, there is no hiding place, there is no escape, no matter how desperately it is sought. And so note second here, there is the hope of refuge, but for those who won't trust in God, there is the empty hope of hiding. Again, that is the response of men. They're trying to hide from the judgment of God. He uses this verb two times here in these verses and puts it on a description of what they're doing and then on their own lips. He says, first, in verse 15, the free men, they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks. And in verse 16, it's, it, they're saying, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne. Hiding is the theme. Hiding is the response. Trying to escape what's coming. They cry out even to the rocks, and even to the mountains to hide them from this wrath that is coming. It's a hopeless cry, a desperate cry in the face of judgment. He's borrowing this language actually from Hosea, a cry related to the destruction of Israel. Jesus mentioned this cry again in Luke 23, 30, when he was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. You see a theme here. Their cry indicates here their suffering, being crushed by the mountains, and the resulting death of that would be better than the terror they are facing. One makes a comment on this, that everything people sell their souls to gain fails them when, they, when the great day comes. All of these things are of no value. And yet they cry, verse 16, fall on us, hide us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne. Now this desire is as old as sin is. Ever since sin entered into the world, this is exactly what men want to do. Here, here it is in the face of undeniable judgments that come from the hand of God. But men always in sin want to hide from God and avoid the reality and the consequences of sin. We're well familiar with it. What was the very first reaction of Adam and Eve when sin entered into the world? Who is he? Adam. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, which should have been a time of refreshment and joy fellowship and delight, and it was, certainly was in chapter 2. But what does he say? Now that sin had entered into their hearts, now that their, 
they had become corrupted. It says the man and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Later, Adam said, when God asked, why did you hide yourself? He said, I heard Adam did the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself as though I could hide. Israel tries to hide their secret idolatries from God. In verse Isaiah 29, 15, it says, Woe to those who deeply hide their plans. Literally, it's, you could translate that. They go deep from the Lord to hide counsel. They try to go far away to escape his notice. He says, who those, those who hide deeply their plans from the Lord, whose deeds are done in a dark place, and they say, who sees us or who knows us? One said this evokes the picture of a little group of officials huddled around a table in some basement room as if God could not see them there. Men try to hide their deeds. Where, do, where does a lot of sinning take place? At night, behind closed doors, hidden away from the sight of others. You think of the things that men do in darkness that they would never do in the light. The things that men do hidden away from the gaze of others that they would never do in a crowd or before the sight of others, thinking they can hide that sin. Again, this is the very nature of sin, to hide from the light, to hide from consequences. Men are brought to court, and what do they want to do? They want to make excuses to hide and escape from the judgment that is due them from justice. Men hide from the light by suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. We read it earlier or I mentioned it earlier in John chapter 3, they hate the light. But here's the thing, suppressing the truth does not make it go away. And there's no way to hide our sin from God who is present and sees even the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. There's no way to hide. There's no way to hide from God. There's no way to hide from his knowledge of sin. Again, God so often makes this so explicit and powerful in the prophet's Speaking to Israel, he says in Jeremiah 23, 24, Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not notice him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? The idea of filling here refers to place, presence, not just knowledge. He's referring here to his very presence, the very fullness of God. His infinite presence fills all of his creation, heaven and earth. That there is no escape. One said this, Stephen Charnock, an old Puritan, says, I, by fill, referring to this verse, by filling heaven and earth is meant a filling of it with his essence. No place can be imagined that is deprived of the presence of God. And therefore, when the scripture anywhere speaks of the presence of God, it joins heaven and earth together. He so fills them that there is no place without him. In other words, when we think of the, the infinite nature of God in relation to knowledge, we refer to that as omniscience. When we think of the infinite nature of God in relation to presence, we think of that as omnipresence. They are distinct, and yet they are bound together. God does not merely have knowledge as though he were some king over here, and he's aware of what's going on over there. God has knowledge because of his nature. Inherently, he knows all things. He also has knowledge as the prophet here declares, because he is present and observing the very wicked deeds that are done by men. So he's not merely that somebody reports it to him and he knows he's present. In your sin, in my sin, he's present. He's not off somewhere just watching or hearing a report. He's present. In other words, there's no way to hide from God's judgment, but men will try. They'll try to seek physical safety from his presence, but it will be to no avail. Listen to the way this is described powerfully. And just listen to the words in the book of Amos. The prophet Amos, he says this in Amos chapter 9. He says, though they dig to Sheol, verse 2, from there my hand will take them. Though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide on the summit of Carmel, I will search them out and take them from there. And though they conceal themselves from my side on the floor of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it will bind the, bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword and it will slay them. And I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. You want to escape to heaven, God will drag you down. 
You want to go to the underworld of death and Sheol, God will bring you up. You want to hide in the inner recesses of the darkest place you can find, God will go there and pull you out. You want to go to the bottom of the sea, God will send his judgment even there. It's interesting, there are miles and miles of underground tunnels used by Hamas, we're well aware of that, that are difficult for the Israeli military to reach. There was in the Vietnam War, one of the issues is that they built these massive, massive uh, complex of these underground tunnels so they could move without being detected. Mexican drug cartels do the same thing, tunnels built under the border and so forth to traffic drugs and humans and all of those things trying to hide. Some people build shelters deep in the ground to try to build a safe place that will escape from any kind of destruction that comes upon the earth. They store up food and supplies to go down there and hide until it all passes away so that they can feel safe. They spend thousands of dollars on it some. Well, that may be helpful against bombs, but it's silly and useless before God's judgment. There's no place that can be hidden. If they dug a hole to the center of the earth, God would go down there and drag them out to be held to the court of his justice. And so if you are seeking to hide anything from God, we would want to apply this to ourselves. If you have any sin of thought or deed that you're seeking to conceal from God, it's futile. But the encouragement is, is God's willing to forgive if you confess it and you forsake it. If you trust in Christ, in whom there is infinite mercy, but if not, there's only judgment. And this is what these find. They hid themselves in the caves and the rocks, thinking that somehow they could get out from the sight of God, but it's futile. They can't hide from God. They can't hide their thoughts from God. They can't hide their deeds from God. And they can't hide their bodies from God in judgment. You can't hide. And it is the judgment of both the Father and the Son. And that's really the striking feature here. They want to hide. They want to die. They want the mountains and the rocks to fall. Rebellious man will. From who? Hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Notice here first the personal nature then of this wrath. Again, some want to make God's wrath impersonal. Some argue vehemently for that and say God's wrath is really just, it's really just the consequence of living in a moral universe that he created. And so therefore, if you do wrong, then you will suffer the consequences of that wrong. They say all of wrath is really encompassed in this sowing and reaping principle that there are natural consequences to evil. God is not personally uh, enacting this judgment. God is not personally angry with the sinner. It's just the way that it is. It's just a necessary consequence of his moral nature that he built into the universe. But that's not the picture of Scripture. God's wrath is personal, and it's part of the terror. It's a part of the terror that they feel. It's connected here with his presence, that personal idea. It says, hide us from the presence of God. He notes this first in relation to the Father. He defines he says, from the presence of him who sits on the throne. We've already looked at that in chapters 4 and 5. This is a reference to the Father who's not described in any physical kind of way, merely as the one who sits on the throne with all authority and power, the one by whom all things were created. And, of course, we've seen as well that the risen Christ is with him. But he uses this word here. He says, from the presence of him who sits on the throne. It's literally face. It's used in a variety of ways, even in Revelation. It's repeated many times. It refers to face, literal face. It refers to appearance, the idea of appearing. But it refers to the idea of presence powerfully. And it's used a Hebrew equivalent synonym in the Old Testament. It has the idea of God's presence. It's used actually interestingly to speak of the presence, the face as it were, of Satan in Revelation 12, 14. But two other times in this, with this particular idea, it's in Revelation to refer to God. Once in Revelation chapter 20 when it says heaven and earth fled away from the presence of God. And then in Revelation 22.4 saying that believers will see one day see his face. Face there is the term here. It's a, it's a powerful word. Interestingly, just those other two uses show that 
The idea of God's face or his presence is the longing of the regenerate heart, and it's the fear of the unregenerate heart. And just on that note, it's, it's just, I would just make one observation here. And that is what's, there's, there's a profound sense, this idea of presence. And here you have the unbelieving who are in opposition to God, who are wanting to hide from the presence of God, who want to hide from his judgment that is being unleashed. And yet at the same time, there is a profound sense in which the judgment itself is to be excluded from the presence of God. In 2 Thessalonians 1.9, speaking of the return of Christ, this at the end of the age, he says, these, those the rebellious, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, same words here, and from the glory of his power. That is away from his presence, from every expression of God's benevolence and his goodness to know only his displeasure and rejection. To be away from his presence is included in the broad sense, in the idea of his wrath. Look at here. He brings up the idea of wrath, and notice he brings it up first in relation to the Lamb. Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Later he's going to attach this in verse 17 to both the Father and the Son. He says the great day of their wrath, but he attaches it first to the Lamb. And so note here that this judgment is related to God's presence. That makes it personal. And also that it is a personal response to sin. It's a personal response to sin. God doesn't operate just on some mechanical kind of or mechanistic, mechanistic, uh, you know, nature where, you know, I, I do this, so I have to do this. I said this, so I have to do this. And he, somehow he's bound to just work that way. When he created man, he created us in his image. He created us in his image in anticipation of Christ taking on humanity and fully displaying that image in his incarnation and us ultimately in the resurrection. And so God takes sin very personally. And this wrath is a a powerful word to, to capture that idea. And it's not... Wrath in the sense does not have the idea, the sense in relation to God's judgment of this sort of uncontrolled outburst that God's kind of like we experience where I can kind of take this and then when I can't take it anymore, I just unleash and I get irritated and angry and an outburst of anger, which is an evidence of the flesh. That's not how it works with God. He doesn't have outburst. He doesn't lose control. The idea of wrath is a settled and determined response of the Holy One to sin in his creation. It's settled, it's determined, it's purposeful. And here it is the unified wrath of the persons of the Godhead. Again, the God the Father and God the Son, the exalted Jesus Christ, who have their wrath that is expressed then against the unbelieving and the rebellious of the earth. And we don't want to again detach this as it goes, it's just some impersonal thing. God is angry with the wicked, he says, every day. God hates and abhors and detests pride and the arrogance and the loftiness of man. Listen to how he says it in chapter 14. He says, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, speaking again of judgment, which is mixed in the full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of The lamb, speaking here of the beast. It's not just a a casual response that he has. It says the anger, the cup of his anger, the fierce cup of his fierce anger in other places. He says in chapter 19, verse 15, in the return of Christ, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. It is this wrath that hangs over all of men, even right now, this very moment. Jesus himself said, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Ephesians 2 says this. Outside of Christ, we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. 
Speaking of the unbelieving, he says, For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. In Colossians 3, 6, it's because of these things, talking about deeds of the flesh, that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. We've read it in Romans. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Chapter 2, verse 5, your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now consider the immensity of this statement. Consider the immensity of it, of this judgment. God is, again, infinite in power, presence, and knowledge. He spoke the universe into existence by simple commands in six days. That's his power. And it's the same God who created with power who is coming to judge that creation. It is that same wrath of that same God who is sustaining a universe that we can't even comprehend, whose wrath hangs over the rebellious. Imagine this, if you were up against a great army, and even with all of the odds stacked against you, you may be able to muster up some glimmer of hope of escape or of victory, but not so with God. When he judges, his judgment is sure, and it will accomplish his purposes. And again, here, that kind of wrath is attached to the Father and to the Son, but with this striking language, and to the Lamb. This Lamb is the Son, the Son of Psalm 2, which really this is, this is the beginning outworking of, where it says that those who do not do homage to the Son, he'll become angry and they'll, they'll perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. And here it is, that Son's wrath, but captured in this dramatic picture of a Lamb. This is an incredible contrast. And I want to wrap this up primarily by looking at that particular contrast. Because this is striking. And note then that not only the personal nature of God's wrath, but the paradoxical nature of God's wrath. This wrath comes from the same God and Father who provides salvation. That's the striking nature of it. When you read that, yeah, you jump into it and it's the holy, infinite God, creator, wrath against his creatures, but this is the same God who just before the foundation, or before, who was just in Revelation chapter 5 being worshipped for his salvation. You made them to be a kingdom of priests. You were slain, speaking of the Son, purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Verse 12, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion. This is the same Father on the throne and the same Lamb who is the praise of all of the redeemed, worshipped for his grace. The Lamb who was slain to purchase men from every tribe, nation, and tongue. This is the same Lamb and Father who before the foundation of the world determined to create and save a, human, a new humanity through the death, resurrection, and ascension of the Son. It's the same Lamb. It's the same Father and Lamb who offers salvation to every class of humanity. And here, it is the terror of that same humanity. And I want to make this observation up front. We must never confuse grace, mercy, and meekness with weakness. We must never confuse God's kindness and compassion with weakness, with tolerance of sin and rebellion. That is a tremendous mistake. The grace, the compassion, the mercy of God is so overwhelmingly great, it's difficult for us to imagine. But it's necessary to consider those things, and they can only be rightly understood in light of the terrible wrath of God as well and the lamb against sin. Remember, it was Jesus himself who said, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. This is the lamb of whom John said is the sacrificial lamb who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one who says he lays down his life for the sheep. This is the one who says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. This is the wrath of the one who bore wrath on the cross in his sacrifice. It is at the very heart of the imagery, this idea of the lamb and the identification of Christ, who is 
the subject of God's wrath when he was crushed by the Father on the cross, who for the anguish of his soul saw it and was satisfied. It's the same lamb who in that being crushed by the Father for human sin experienced a darkness we don't understand and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the same lamb. It's not a different lamb. It's not a different God. It's the same one. That's what's so striking. He doesn't say the wrath of the son. He says the wrath of the lamb. Wait, isn't it the lamb who was meek? Isn't it the lamb who was sacrificed? Isn't it the lamb who was held up as a propitiation? In other words, a wrath-averting sacrifice on the cross for all of the world to see? Same lamb. And that's the contrast. And that's the striking feature that, he, that God wants us to understand in revealing it in this way. On the cross, he defeated sin and Satan by bearing the full brunt of sin's consequence as a sinless sacrifice, destroying the works of the devil. But here on the day of judgment, he will defeat the same sin and the same Satan and the same devil and the same rebels by a display of holy, infinite power and abhorrence of all that is evil and corrupting creation. He'll destroy Satan not by letting himself be given as a sacrifice according to the plan of the Father to make atonement for sin, but he'll destroy him, Revelation 20 says, eventually by throwing him into the lake of fire and brimstone, into the place where the hell that was created for him. And so here's a turning of the tables, isn't it? At the cross, the Holy Son of God was viewed as we as weak. In judgment, he will be feared in his power. And if we're paying attention when we read Scripture, we see that this is precisely what Jesus gave hints to, even when he was a lamb led to slaughter, even when he was like a lamb who did not open his mouth. At his arrest, when he was betrayed, and Judas led the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities to take him by deceit with clubs and swords, what did Jesus say? He said, this hour and the power of darkness are yours. This hour and the power of darkness are yours. In saying that, he was displaying both his submission and his sovereignty. His submission because he who is light, he to whom all judgment has been given, he had already said that, was in that very moment submitting to the Father's plan to endure the hatred of the darkness so that his obedience would shine through and redeem the many. It was his sovereignty because the darkness is not calling the shots. Pilate isn't calling the shots. The leaders aren't calling the shots. Rome isn't calling the shots. God is calling the shots. When he says, this hour is yours, this hour is yours, because that hour has been granted to you, it's yours. You didn't take it. It's not yours by right. It's yours because God gave it, and he's using it for his purposes. This hour is yours, but it's only yours for a determined period of time. The hour of God's judgment is coming after he, he gave hint to this, and he showed this even when he was enduring the false trial, as he was there before those who had again taken him by night, breaking every code of conduct, even for their own legal procedures. Him who was beat and slapped in the face when they were questioning him before that happened, when they were accusing him of blasphemy, he said this, they said, what do you have to say for yourself? And he said, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of darkness. Or the clouds of heaven, excuse me. Again, even in that moment, even in his being bound and held up before the leaders was declaring, you are not in control. And in a recognition of his enduring injustice, to satisfy God's justice, he noted a day is coming in which he would be the executor of divine justice against sin. And so it is really helpful for us to remember this too as his followers who know him. In our cultural moment as throughout the history of the church, it would seem that Christians are the weak ones because of a lack of influence, because of suffering. But at the end time, it will be shown that those who are the followers of the Lamb are the winners and they will be vindicated on that day. With Christ. And so here the rich and the mighty are held to account comprehensively and without partiality before the justice of God. They are seeking to flee the wrath of God, which is personal, which is 
comprehensively executed. And so what do they say when faced before this lamb? In verse 17, they say, The great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? It's true, the great day of their wrath has come, but again, this is only the beginning. It'll get worse, the return of Christ. The answer to who is able to stand is clear. No one is able to stand. The destruction of life here and the eternal destruction to come after the final judgment is inevitable. But here's the glory of it. In all of this contrast and all the paradox of his judgment that is personal and deep is that this same lamb, the same God who sits upon the throne, the one who will bring judgment, the one who will hold all to account, is the one who offers even now, in the hearing of these words, to those in the hearing of these words, he offers salvation. He says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Listen to the words of this lamb, I alluded to them earlier. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So for us who know Christ, we look at this and we tremble because we understand the reality and the weight of these words. At the same time, we delight and find joy because God will be vindicated and his justice will be upheld. If there are any who are here who are outside of Christ who have not yet turned to him, then there's no escaping judgment. But these are the words that God would want ringing in your ears, not merely of his judgment, but his offer to say, seek him while he may be found. He is incredible in his mercy. Let's pray and then we'll prepare our hearts to take the Lord's table together. Father, thank you for these warnings. Father, thank you for giving to us a true and right picture of the end of this age, the reality of sin. Oh God, if there's a word that the world does not want to hear, it is sin and guilt. It is judgment. And sadly, our Lord, we know that much of your professing church minimizes this truth that you yourself have revealed to us for our good and for your glory. But Lord, we would not want to do that. We would not want to silence you in any way. And so even as you give us opportunity to speak of the gospel, while there's much wisdom, much grace, much, much gentleness to those who stand in opposition, much willingness to suffer, let us not in any way compromise the reality of who you are and that Christ, you are the only rescue from the wrath that is to come. You are the only Savior who bore for us the justice of God for our sin if we trust in you. That you are the Lamb in whom there is refuge and by whose blood we can be cleansed and made clean and given a future, an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, guaranteed and secured for us and held up before all the watching world, not merely by the cross in which you were put to death and gave up your spirit, but in the empty grave by which you rose victorious to return one day to establish your kingdom. So remind us of these truths as we come to your table. And we pray these things in your matchless name, Lord Jesus. Amen.